Open your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 6. Uh, last week, I was reminded again of how very thankful I am to have godly men who can come behind me and uh, open God's Word. Uh, Charlie Rutledge was prepared to do that until he got sick, and so just as Charlie stepped in for me a very short notice a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Bealey stepped in for Charlie on very short notice a couple of weeks ago. God is good, and he equips his body as he sees fit, but I was really thankful for what Dr. Bealey opened up. The idea that we can sing and talk and pray about God's sovereignty, but somehow uh, the natural connection in our mind is that God is sovereign over the good things, but in the difficulties, that sovereignty can be harder to see. You open up the life of Joseph, and it's a living picture of the sovereignty of God demonstrated in one human life. In good situations and in incredibly difficult situations. Imagine wrestling with where was God as he's being thrown into the pit. Imagine wrestling with where God was as he sold into slavery. Imagine wrestling with who is God and what is he doing when even obedience brings you into further trial. Those are the times when our theology is tested. Is God who he says he is in every circumstance? And of course, the answer is yes. But how often our hearts need that reminder that God is still God, that God is still good, that God is still sovereign and working what is eternally good for his people in any and every circumstance. And that same sovereignty of God, of course, is one of the major themes of the Minor Prophets. And today we jump back into Hosea. And we are right in the middle of a long section of God's displeasure with his people. And I know that going through judgment on a week-by-week-by-week basis gets exhausting at best. As if listening to me wasn't difficult enough, now we got to put up with sin and sin and judgment and judgment and judgment. Uh, But it is important. We are going to move through three whole chapters today, God willing, and we are going to do that fairly quickly. Uh, Not every word, not every phrase, but there are critical themes for us to see in this. God left us these chapters not just to exhaust us with judgment, but because you and I, or at least I'll speak for myself, I am prone to want to move quickly from my failure to God's restoration. I want the release that repentance and restoration brings, and we know that that's promised. We know that it's there, but so often it means that I move quickly over my sin. I don't think about it. I don't meditate on it. I don't ever actually get to the depth of sorrow that it brings. I don't see it for the rebellion that it is. And Israel had that same problem. In as much as they knew about God, they show that they don't really know God. They forgot what he's like. They forget his holiness. And there are consequences for not knowing this God. There are consequences for moving toward him in a way that he didn't ask for. Because here's the deal. God has exposed their sin to them. God has even begun to judge them for their sin. But the question is, what is Israel going to do about it? Well, today we're going to see that they will reap the consequences for their failed worship. I'm going to read just a bit out of Hosea 6, chapter, or Hosea 6 verses 1 through 3. to kind of set the stage for where we're going today. Hosea Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up, that we may live before Him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come, out. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts, you know your people, you know all things. 
So, Lord, as we prepare to talk about sin, we ask that you would search our hearts, that you would try us, that you would see if there be any hurtful way in us, that you would expose those things that we would prefer to keep hidden and secret, because it's good and gracious when you do that. As uncomfortable as it is to think on and deal with and dwell on our sin, Lord, you're good to expose those things because it makes us more like you. And so, Lord, we ask as we come before your word today that you would open our eyes. Show us wonderful things from your word. Show us the wonder of who you are. And, Lord, show us the truth about ourselves. Those sins that we minimize and ignore, that we excuse. Lord, help us to see them the way that you see them so that we can then deal with them the way that you call us to. Bring us to repentance and then help us to see the joy of restoration. We praise you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So I thought that you reap what you sow was a pretty common phrase until I said it to my kids and they looked at me like I was speaking Chinese or something because apparently that you reap what you sow is only good for a particular generation and kids don't talk like that anymore. If you've never heard that phrase before, I would think that it would be fairly obvious. You reap what you sow. What you plant is what you get. You sow or you plant corn, you are going to reap or raise up corn. If you plant an apple tree, you are going to get apples at the end of that. And the point of what we're going to look through today is that the same truth is valid spiritually. What you put in, you will get out. God gave Israel tremendous truth about who he was. He even gave them tremendous truth about their sin. And the question is, what are they going to do about it? What are they going to sow in response to who God is? And really, that question is what resonates with us. What are you going to sow? What are you going to plant in response to who and what God is? The tragic reality is that according to Hosea 8-7, he says, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. Israel plants the wind. You say, how do they do that? It's the idea of picturing uh, what's empty, what's worthless, what's vain, what is passing. Israel plants nothing of substance when it comes to relating rightly to the God of all creation. And so what are they going to reap? Well, if you sow nothing of value, there can be nothing of value that comes in return. They sow the wind and they are going to reap the whirlwind. They are going to reap only justice. Terrible judgment that God brings on them for their failure. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to look at what Israel sowed. We're going to look at what Israel planted. We're going to see what that looked like in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. And in chapter 6, we're going to basically see that Israel sowed a wrong approach. They came to God with the wrong approach. In chapter 7, we're going to see that they have the wrong affections. They plant the wrong love. And in chapter 8, we're going to see the wrong understanding. Israel has a wrong understanding of who God is. So we're going to open up chapter 6, and we're going to begin by looking at the wrong approach to God. Because God, in his mercy, said, Israel, you can come to me. I'm going to be your God, and you'll be my people But they fail in that approach and their response. And how they do that, first of all, is they fail to repent. Remember quickly how chapter 5 closed. It said, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. And then we read chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And it kind of looks like they got it, doesn't it? They say things like he has torn us 
that he may heal us. He's struck us down. He will bind us up. Let us press on to know the Lord. He's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. And there's this picture of what many people see as repentance, or at least the preview of what their repentance will look like. Here's the problem. As you go through the rest of Hosea, in particular, chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, you will see that there was no genuine repentance. If this is a preview of what they will someday say, then they are clearly not there yet. And if this is what they're saying now, there are some important things that they're leaving out. Remember, at the end of chapter 5, he'll return until they acknowledge their guilt and seek his face. There's no acknowledgement of guilt in those three verses. There's the recognition that God has torn them, but there's almost the automatic assumption that, well, since he has done this, he will surely restore us. He will bind us up. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up. That's not a prophetic picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's simply saying this is going to happen pretty quickly. Two days and three days, it's going to come like that. It's almost pictured as automatic. Just like the rains come at the appointed time in the right season, God is going to restore us. But remember the key truth here. There's not going to be any restoration without repentance. Until Israel has a radical heart change, until they come in brokenness and humility before God and confess and turn from their sin, there will be no national automatic restoration. The heart change precedes the physical change. But Israel doesn't see that yet. In verse 6, which we're going to come to in a minute, we're going to see that they're willing to offer sacrifices, but there's no heart behind them. In chapter 7, verse 14, we're told that they cry out to the Lord, but it isn't from the heart. In chapter 8, verse 2, it says they raise a cry that they know God, but everything else shows that that is tragically false. So again, whether this is what they say someday or whether this is what they're saying now, the reality of the entire context of Hosea is they do not yet get it. They don't repent. God has said, repent, turn to me, and I will return to you. At best, they have a shallow understanding of what it means to repent and return to God. Not only do they fail to approach him in genuine humility and repentance, We're going to see that they failed to worship him properly through the sacrifices. The sacrifices were God's given way that the people were supposed to approach Yahweh. A holy God, a sinful people, this is the way that a sinful people can approach that holy God, uh, but they don't have that. Verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. These pictures of water and what their love is like. See, their love should have led them to approach God humbly and genuinely through the sacrifices, but their love is pictured as this vain and worthless thing. Again, something we'll work through in chapter 7. It's like a cloud and like dew. Now, in a society, a desert society, how precious is water? It is the difference between life and death. And imagine in a dry and thirsty land seeing a cloud on the horizon and all the promise and all the hope that that would bring. But God says it's like a cloud that passes with nothing in it. It's like the dew that's there in the morning, this cool layer that seems to cover the earth and promise respite and hope and refreshment. But then as soon as the morning sun hits it, what happens? It's gone. He says, Israel, your love is like that transitory, vain, empty thing And here's how it shows itself. Verse 6. For I desire steadfast love 
and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And here's the implication. They were doing the sacrifices. They were bringing the burnt offerings, but it wasn't what God wanted at all. And some people will take this verse and they will make it sound as if God doesn't care about outward obedience at all. That God actually has no use for the things. Remember, sacrifices weren't the problem. The sacrifices were exactly what God had commanded. It's a foreign thing to us, but it was a gracious gift that God gave the people. Because the wages of sin is what? Death. Very good. When you sin, you ought to die. But God in his mercy said, when you sin, something can stand in your place. Every time they participated in that sacrificial system, it should have been a constant reminder that sin is serious and that God is unimaginably merciful. The action of the sacrifice wasn't the problem. The problem was they were all sacrificed and no heart. They would bring the sacrifices, but it was rote. It was what they had always done as a people. It was habit. The sacrifices were a way to keep God off their back because as long as they did this, maybe he won't care about the rest of our life that we're spending entirely separate and apart from him. They forgot that God does not need the blood of bulls and goats and lambs to satisfy him. God does not need animal sacrifices to sustain him. God was not dependent on their worship to make him who he was. God gave that to them so that they might approach him. What he desired was steadfast love, chesed. Great word, used a bunch of times in the Old Testament that is a tough one-on-one translation because it's steadfast love, it's mercy, it's this covenant-keeping, constant kind of love. In other words, it's exactly the kind of love that he had poured out on them. And he said, as I have loved you, this is how you are to respond in love to me. And they don't do it. If they did love God, they would have brought the sacrifices. See, it's not that the behavior doesn't matter. It's not that God doesn't care about what it is produced. It's just that God is infinitely and perfectly aware that the heart is what drives behavior. If they saw God for who he was, if they saw their sin for what it was, they would have approached God through those very same sacrifices, but the heart behind it would have been entirely different. Every sacrifice would have been an act of humility and worship and joy and gratitude and thankfulness and praise to the God, the holy, infinite, perfect God that for some reason would overlook the sins of his people. And finally, in chapter 6, we see that the people failed to keep their covenant with God. There's covenant failure here. It's not just that they don't love God the way that they should. It's not just that they don't sacrifice with the right heart. It's just that they fail the entirety of their covenant promise with him. In Exodus, at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses brings the people God's expectation. Moses says, God is going to dwell among you. God is going to be your God and you are going to be his people. And this is what obedience to him looks like. And do you remember what the people said? All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. One of the greatest lies in human history. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. By the way, it's one that I've probably repeated a few dozen times in my life. Whatever you say, God, I'm there for. So let's not get too hard on Israel. 
But the people promised to live in covenant obedience to God, and God makes it very clear that they live in complete covenant failure. Look at verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Now, this is part of the section of the Bible I know that we already read over very, very quickly. If you add controversy or differing opinions to that, then we want to move through it even more quickly. Uh, there's some significant theological things here that I have to unpack for you. At the end of the day, you might not care about them, but you need to understand that there are big implications even to that little phrase in the verse. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There are several different ways that people take that, and they matter. Now, I'm going to make it clear. Whatever way they take this here, what I'm talking about, there's no uh, separation from orthodoxy. These are not things that we uh, dissolve fellowship over. These are not things uh, that we go to war with believers over. They do matter, and there are implications, but all of these are within the bounds of historical orthodoxy of the church. So don't go light anybody up on Facebook because of them. But the first way to understand this is basically how the ESV and other translations like the NASB have it. Like Adam, capital A, they transgress the covenant. It says like Adam, like that first man, our first father, they transgressed the covenant. Adam in the garden failed. And what happens is they will take this verse and they will say that Adam in the garden committed a covenant violation. And they will use it to refer to a specific covenant often called the covenant of works. It's one of the hinge points of covenant theology. And if that means nothing to you, that's absolutely fine. But you need to understand that this verse, if you've ever heard that term, is one of the major sources for that understanding. And here's the reality. It is true. In the garden, Adam was a failed forefather. Adam failed to obey what God had commanded him to do. I cannot read a specific covenant of works back into that. I think that oversteps the text. But there are good and godly men and women who do that. That is option number one. Like Adam, our first father, they failed their covenant obligation as he did in the garden. The second option is to take that in the way if you have the NIV or the King James or the New King James that takes it, because you'll see in your translation that it says, like men. But like men, they transgress the covenant. And there's perfectly valid reasons for doing that, because Adam is not only a proper name, Adam is also a way to refer to all mankind. So what it could be saying is, like all men, they transgress the covenant. Like all men, even like their pagan neighbors, they were covenant violators. Although Israel should have been separate and special and distinct, they proved to be just like every other man and that they had no intention or no obligation or no heart draw toward following God's covenant commands. How do you tell the difference between capital A, Adam, and lowercase a, like men, context, like most things? And again, theologically, absolutely valid. Israel at Sinai was supposed to be entirely different from the nations. They were supposed to be God's treasured possession. And by this time, what did they become? Like everybody else. We'll even see that in chapter 8 or chapter 7. Mixed with the nations so much that you couldn't even tell the difference anymore. So like all men, Israel truly had become covenant violators. And again, good and godly men and women that take that position. There's a third way to read it. And it is the way that I take it. And I'm going to tell you that I am a minority view here. That's okay. I can be different. You can disagree. We can talk about it. Again, buy me lunch. I love those things. And that is that Adam is not only a person. Adam is not only the term for all mankind. Adam is also a city in Israel. 
It's the place where in Joshua we're told that the waters of the Jordan backed up to when God stopped that river so that his people could come across. And that particle in Hebrew that says like Adam can also be at Adam. And so I would read it as, but at Adam they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And I think that context bears that out a little. The next slide is going to show you a map. One of our favorite map slides here. And as we see that, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, you can actually see several locations in this. If you read on, like Adam, they trans, but like Adam, or at Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There, they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. So if you look at that first one, there's Gilead right there. Gilead's an area more than a city, but there is a city of, city of Ramoth Gilead there. There's Shechem, and right in the middle is Adam. I think what God is doing is he is giving a picture of the complete failure of this very specific place in his people. Well, how did they violate the covenant there? I don't know. But I also don't know specifically what they did in Shechem or Gilead either. God is not giving the details of these locations. He is saying you commit constantly and in every place covenant violation. Israel, you know what you did. They've dealt faithlessly with God. I think God is pointing out the wickedness and the covenant violation of his people because the geographical condemnation runs all the way through there, all the way to the end. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. No matter what way you take it, here's the point. A harvest is coming and you are going to get exactly what you planted. You have planted nothing but disobedience. You have failed to approach me, the holy God who chose to live among you, who chose to call you his treasured possession. You have failed to approach me in any appropriate way whatsoever, and you are going to reap exactly what you have sown. A harvest is coming, but the harvest is going to be judgment. So what have we seen? Ultimately, it's a wrong approach to God. Their way of dealing with sin is to come to God through half-hearted attempts, failed repentance, external obedience, continued failed uh, covenant action. And as we move into chapter 7, we're going to see that sin not only tempts us to approach God the wrong way, but sin moves us toward the wrong affections. Because here's the problem. They don't love God, but everybody loves something. And as we open up chapter 7, we're going to see the heart of the problem and that is that the people don't love God, they love their sin. The very end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, again, make it clear that God would restore them. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, when I would do these things, I stand ready to forgive. If they come to me as I've called them to, I stand ready to heal them. But what happens? The iniquity of Ephraim is revealed and the evil deeds of Samaria. Though I stand ready to forgive them, all that continues to come up is wickedness and evil and failure. And look at verse 3. By their evil they make the king glad and the princes by their treachery. The reality is that the people have replaced a love for, an affection, a heart longing for God with a love for sin. That's the root of the issue. And if we're honest, that's the root of a lot of our issues too. We don't like to talk about it that way. 
you and I would much rather, if we're honest, talk about the difficulty of our situation that drove us to sin. We would rather talk about the difficulty of other people that made us sin. We would rather talk about our bad habits, our bad circumstances, our bad luck, our bad upbringing, all these other bad things that made me respond the way that I do when the reality is, the honest, ugly reality is that by far, most of the time, I sin and continue to sin because I love my sin. I can't say that in church, certainly not, but the reality is that we love our sin. Why do we get angry? Because it feels good. Maybe not long term, but in the moment, it feels good. It feels right. It feels righteous to be vindicated in how I was wronged. In the flesh, I pursue selfish ends. I pursue sin. I pursue my own needs because it feels good. It is easier to love and indulge me than it is to submit to God and hate my sin the way that he does. The the people, they would not turn. The reality is they couldn't turn because there's no desire to turn. Uh, Sin brought them temporary happiness and fulfillment, and Israel is willing to trade that for lasting fellowship with God. And that sin is the same, that habit is the same, not only from generation to generation in Israel, but that love of sin still characterizes you and I today. And, And God shows them pictures of what it's like. God says you love the wrong thing. You love your sin, and for some reason you think that makes you wise and strong. It's like in Romans 1 when Paul says that thinking that they're wise, they became fools. People living in their sin think it makes them smart and strong and different and bold and brave. God says, here's what you're like, and he gives them four pictures of what their disordered affections have brought them to. And the first one is it's like an oven. Verse 7, all of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. All of their kings have fallen, and none of them calls on me. Israel's like an oven, like a smoldering oven. In in verse 4, he says they're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire. In other words, they're so hot. They burn with such passion. They burn with such lust. They burn with such anger that that if this was a picture of a baker's oven, he wouldn't even have to tend it. He wouldn't even have to add wood to the fire. It is more than hot enough to do the job and to continue doing the job. How often lust is pictured as this burning passion. How often anger is pictured as this burning passion. They're like an oven, and then the picture that he gives, like the historical illustration, is that it has devoured their rulers. This burning desire is consuming their leadership. If you read 2 Kings 15, over the course of just that one chapter, 2 Kings 15, you see that King Zechariah is killed by Shalom, Shalom is killed by Menachem, Pekahiah is killed by Pekah, Pekah is killed by Hosea. King after king after king in one chapter is killed. And after all that murder, after all that intrigue, after all that upheaval, none of the people seek God. They don't see it. Their sin has blinded them to the degree that they don't see this isn't working. They don't see the utter devastation that this is bringing on the nation. You get the second picture in verse 8. 
Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Remember, they're not distinct anymore. They look just like everybody else. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Like a bread that you put in the oven and then forget about it, and the bottom is scorched beyond all recognition, and the top's not done. You know what that is? Useless. It's not like you can eat the middle and it's okay. It's useless here and everywhere. And the irony is that they don't even notice. Look at verse 9. Strangers devour his strength and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him and he knows it not. They're so useless. Their sin has blinded them. Their love of their sin is such a blinding thing that they don't even notice their weakness. It's like an old man who's getting gray and doesn't realize it. This is what happens at Turkey Bowl every Thanksgiving. We go out there. And we do the things that we did 20 years ago, and we wake up the next morning, we go, why can't I move? We're so foolish, we forget that we age and our bodies can't do the things that our bodies used to do. God says, Israel, you are so entrenched in your sin, you don't even realize how it is gutting your strength. You're shocked that you're weak. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord or seek him for all this. In their weakness, they're stubborn and they won't turn. Third picture, verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove. Now there are many times when a dove is used for innocence, for purity. This is not that. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. The picture is of this flitting, foolish, stupid bird that goes from one place to another, never landing on anything, going wherever the trap is, wherever the lure is, wherever there seems to be food. And God says, as I go, I will spread over them my net. <laughs> Israel, you go to Egypt and you go to Assyria and you think that if you go to one, they'll help you. And if they don't help you, you go to the other one and they'll help you. You keep looking for help and for strength in all these other places. How foolish. Don't you know that as you go to all those other places, you're going to find judgment? Again, tragically, they're looking for help in the nations that want to destroy them. And as they run toward the nations, they run away from the God who not only has infinite resources at his disposal, but who has promised to heal and to help them. Their love of sin has made them fools. They have given up the God of all eternity and everything that he has promised for help from Egypt and Assyria. Do you understand the foolishness of that trade-off? Because they didn't. They don't see it. And God says, instead of help, you're going to find judgment. I'll discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. If they run from me, I'm going to hunt them like the silly, foolish birds they are. Look at verse 14. They do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. Oh, Israel was suffering. Israel cried out, but not from their heart. They wail and thrash on their beds, but not in repentance. For grain and wine they gash themselves, they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They cry out, but not to God. And even though it was God who strengthened them, it was God who made them a nation in the first place, it was God who's preserved them for this amount of time, they actually hate God because of what he's doing. This is the child who disobeys his parents 
and then cries at the spanking, but not because he failed, not because he was disobedient, but because it hurts and because he hates the parent that's doing it. That's what Israel is. A petulant, rebellious child who doesn't even recognize their sin, but hates the one that's disciplining them. And that final picture is in verse 16. They return, but not upward. Israel goes everywhere, but upward. Israel goes everywhere, but not the right place. They're like a treacherous bow. They're like a bow that when you shoot it, you have no idea where it's going to go, but you know it's not going to go straight. I'm not sure I would want to stand next to that guy in the firing line of the army. Oh, Israel will run when they're punished. But they run everywhere except the one place they ought to. And so they are going to find no help, no mercy, only judgment. And even it says, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. Egypt, that place that you're going to for help, when they see what God does, you're going to be mocked because of it. Your foolishness is going to be exposed and on display before everyone. And everyone will see it except, for some reason, you. So instead of approaching God with humility and genuine repentance, they choose shallow words and external actions. Instead of loving God enough to return to him, instead of loving God enough to return and to do what he's called them to, they love their sin and they become weak and foolish. And that blinding and dulling effect is seen even more clearly as we move into chapter 8 because they don't just ignore God. They prove that they have a completely wrong understanding of what he's like. All of this hinges from the fact that they have a wrong understanding of who God is. The very beginning of chapter 8, one like a vulture, like an eagle, is poised over the house of the Lord, probably Assyria, pictured as this bird of prey ready to carry off the remains of Israel. But look what they say in verse 2. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. God, it's us. It's Israel. We go way back. I mean, surely we know who you are. God, we're buddies. We've been around for a long time. You've been around for a long time. we got a history together. But if they knew, if they really knew God, then they would do things entirely differently. But because they have this failed understanding of of who God is, they do things completely out of order. They have a failed authority. Their wrong understanding of God has led them to a wrong view of what authority looks like. Look at verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. If they knew God, if they really knew God like they said they did, they would understand who he had appointed as their kings. David and his line to rule over his people forever. In other words, if they knew God, they would have returned to Judah and begged the king in the line of David to take them back and to rule over them. Although their history is 150 plus or minus years shorter than Judah, they have nine different dynasties, nine different ruling houses over them because they continue to put authority in where God doesn't call for it. And it's not only the authority of princes and kings. Verse 5 starts to talk about the authority they put in their idols. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. Remember, they set up those wicked places of worship in Bethel and in Dan. Why does he hate it? Verse 6, because it's from Israel. A craftsman made it. It's not God. The calf of Samaria should be broken to pieces. You establish kings in your own order, and you've set up idols in your own order. The authorities that you submit to, both political and religious, are of your own making, and they are going to be destroyed. 
Their failed understanding of God not only led them to failed authority, it leads them to failed allegiances. Look at verse 8. Israel is swallowed up already there among the nations as a useless vessel. Because they become like the nations, they become useless. They might as well be mixed in with everybody else. Their national identity has been swallowed up. For they've gone to Assyria, a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim hired lovers. They've gone to the nations. They've sold themselves to the nations instead of turning to God. They've given their allegiance to everyone but God. Look at verse 10. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the kings and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute or writhe under the hand of the great king. See, they've gone to all the nations for help. God is going to gather them together. They might have scattered looking for help. God's going to bring them together, but it's for the purpose of judgment. And they're going to suffer greatly under the hand of those same kings that they thought would make them strong. What did they miss in all that? What did they fail to understand? All they had to do was read what God had left them. In Psalm 20 where David says, Some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It was nothing that they didn't know. And because they fail to understand God, not only do they bring in bad authority, not only do they have bad allegiances, but ultimately they have failed altars, failed worship. Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning. They have become to him altars for sinning. Probably the best way to read that is they've multiplied these offers, these altars that were supposed to deal with their sin offering, but instead every place they set up has just become an opportunity for further sin. That irony that the place they set up to deal with sin has only become a place where more sin happens. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Israel is not going to perish for lack of knowledge. It's not because they don't have enough law. Israel doesn't need just one more word from the Lord, just one more law, just one more understanding of how they're supposed to do things. God says if I gave them ten thousand, ten thousand more words, they would look at it like this bizarre thing. Why? Because they've already rejected what they have. They already have everything they need. They sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them because they bring it on their own terms and in their own way to their own place. And look at the rest of verse 13 because this is important. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins and they shall return to Egypt. Now, what country eventually comes in and overcomes the northern kingdom? You remember? Assyria. That's right. It's not Egypt. But what is happening is God is going to remove them and bring them back into bondage and slavery, and it is making a picture of the slavery that is in their history. There is a bondage in the history of their people, and he's saying there is bondage coming in your future, and that is critical because there was an exodus in the history of the people, and prophetically God is going to continually say that there is an exodus that is coming. Someone led them out before, someone will lead them out again. Keep that in mind as we go through the rest of the book of Hosea. But here's the root problem. Verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker. That's it. Why do they sow the wind and anticipate reaping the whirlwind? Because Israel forgot their maker. And the reality is you reap what you sow. Sowing and reaping. It's integral into who this is. And it's very easy to say that Israel was foolish. But let's ask the hard question. What's your first response when you're confronted with the truth of God and the truth of your sin? What's my first response? What's your go-to response when your sin is exposed? I would imagine the answers are a little bit different for everybody, but 
knowing me, I can probably guess that it's not exactly what God has called us to. We justify our sin, we minimize our sin, we excuse our sin, and we blame others. And in that way, we become a lot more like Israel than I think we would care to admit. So what do we do? Three things, very quickly. First of all, how's your approach? When your sin is made plain before you, how's your approach to God in light of that? What does real repentance look like? Read Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. And by the way, God, you're just and right when you judge. There's no excuse in Psalm 51. I need you, God, to make me clean. Offering sacrifices aren't what you want, otherwise I'd give it. God, if there were a checklist of things to do to make you happy, I'd do it. But it's not the sacrifices of our God, our broken and contrite heart. How's our approach to God? Is it, is it real repentance? And then does that real heart change drive our actions? Second, what do you love? Discipline and hardship have a way of showing me what I love. When Israel was disciplined, they doubled down on their love of self and idols and everything that the nations offered. When you and I have our sin exposed, when you and I experience God's loving discipline, as Hebrews calls it, what comes to the surface? Humility or pride? Excuses or repentance? Blame or acknowledging our failure? Who you love will be exposed in your trial. And here's the thing. The more you know about God, the easier it is to love him. The more you soak yourself in his word, the more you're surrounded by his people, the more you're exposed to his praise, the bigger he gets, the more beautiful and majestic he gets. And finally, it all really begs the question, do you know God? Israel knew about God. More than any other people on the face of the earth, Israel knew about God, but Israel did not know God. If you have sat in a church pew for 50 years, if you have watched every sermon online, I beg you to ask the question, do you actually know this God or do you simply know all about him? Because eternity really hangs in the balance of answering that question. Lord, I pray that you would help our repentance and our confession not to fall short, that we would acknowledge our sin so that we might see and experience your mercy. God, I pray that we're a people that take our sin seriously so that we can not only see and experience your love, but so that that mercy of God is so fresh in our minds and hearts that we can't help but tell the world about it. Lord, we love you. You're good and you're kind and you're gracious to your people though we don't deserve it. Help us to rejoice in that. In Christ's name, amen.